So according to the village website, this is six times that I have done the sermon the week after Christmas. Two of them were in 2012. Think about that for a moment. It took me a minute, January 1st, December 30th. One calendar year, but two years. And I looked back on the, the titles and I looked at what have I talked about and you can't keep doing the same thing, right? Jesus is bigger on the inside was last year. So you say you want a resolution. All I need is a miracle. Waiting fulfilled. Who are you? That last one continues to get me in trouble with Kate Duff, but uh, she's not here. So, um, And that was in 2006. But there's a theme there. Six messages all tailored to this time of the year. We look back at the holiday season that's just passed. We look forward to the new year. You know, it's this time when we're still inspired by the message of Christmas and what God has done for us. We're looking forward to the new year. We're making promises to ourselves that this year will be different. We will be better or more or, well, something. How's that worked out for you in the past? Doesn't work out so well for me, usually. I've made it a point not to make re resolutions. That way I won't break them. Maybe the Christmas holiday period for you is not good. Maybe this is a time of year that you would just as soon get over with. It reminds you of past failures or pain. And like I prayed, I know two people from our church who have lost parents. I know of at least one other who lost a parent all on Christmas Eve. I can't fix those things in a sermon. I can't make pain go away, and I can't make sense of the senseless. So what do you do? I don't know where you're at this morning. Perhaps you're still in the post-Christmas glow. Perhaps you're waiting for reality to come back full force tomorrow morning if you have to go back to work, or maybe you have a few other day, extra days. Maybe you just wish this was all over. It's hard to know what to say this time of year, whether you should be positive or negative, whether you should show encouragement or sympathy. I hope to do both. You see, today I want to change the routine from the past a little bit. This is not a message about changing our habits or resolutions or uh, encouraging you to start a daily Bible reading plan. This is a message about the messy reality of life, our lives, and the God who is still God and still loves us in spite of it all. See, I don't have a single passage today. I'm going to be hopping all over the place. I'm going to ask you to bear with me. This is not the kind of message that I normally do because this is sort of a personal testimony. Um, honestly, this is not a message, well, this is a message I preached once before, a version of this, uh, at the Grace Campus. And I don't have a lot of points, the outline is simple. And I'm finding, as I get up here this morning, that it's a little bit more difficult than the first time around because my family is sitting over there. 
And this is my story of how God works in the messiness and the pain of what I'm learning. And my goal today is simple. I want you to see that the things that you're facing are real. They are significant. They are life-shaping and as screwed up as we all are and we are, God is still there. But before I can get to all that, I need to start with expectations. And to do that, I want to try an experiment with you. So what I need you to do is close your eyes for just a second. I promise there's nothing shocking. There's, you know, some of you are getting nervous, but there's no pain. There's no anything in here. So what I want you to do, close your eyes. Some of you, this is going to be very easy for others, impossible. Okay? Here goes. I want you to picture your 16-year-old self. I told you. I told you it was going to be impossible for a few of you because you're not 16 yet. See, that's the only people that have the excuse. What was life like for you when you were 16? Do you remember it? Some of you are smiling. I think I see a few grimaces. But it wasn't that hard to think about it. Now, before you open your eyes, I want you to think about this. What did you expect out of life when you were 16? You can open them. I turned 16 at the tail end of 1987. I was a sophomore at Yorkville High School. Biology and geometry and Pascal, that used to be a computer language. And no, Al Gonerman was not my math teacher, but he was teaching at Yorkville High School at that time. Later that year, I was driving the Gray Ghost to school. That would be a 1981 Pontiac Le Mans station wagon with burgundy pleather interior. If you went too slow, it would die. You know, when, you, when you're like going through the parking lot of a mall or something? And one time, when Countryside Center in Yorkville was actually a, a mall, I was driving with my mother, and it died, and I popped it into neutral, hit the key, started it right back into drive in about a second and a half, and she looked at me and she said, that was really fast. How often does that happen to you? Well, more often than I would have liked. There was no tape deck at the beginning, and that was pre-CD. iPods weren't, a, weren't even a dream yet. Computers, Windows 2.0 was brand new, and so was the Macintosh 2. In 1987, Ronald Reagan would, would utter a six-word shot across the bow of the Soviet Union that June. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I still remember it. The Cold War started to show signs of thawing, and Wayne Gretzky would win his eighth consecutive MVP that year. You knew I had to bring it in somehow, John. Red M&M's came back after an 11-year hiatus, and Ted Danson was the bartender at Cheers, not a cop on CSI. Kirk Cameron was a teen heartthrob, not a Christian culture warrior, and Bill Cosby was the most respected father in America, not accused of heinous crimes. 
The Bengals were walking like Egyptians. Los Lobos was singing La Bamba, perhaps the greatest album ever released. The Joshua Tree came out. My expectations when I was 16, West Point. A career in international relations. Did marry a Canadian, so the last part sort of worked out. Um, but life rarely turns out the way that you expect when you're 16. And I've never been able to settle in my mind whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Perhaps it's a little bit of both, but I guess mostly it just is. My life today is certainly not what I pictured back then. We've all got expectations. They may be more conscious or less. We may be more or less honest about what they are, but they're there. And I've had several sets of expectations for my life over the years. And I can say with a kind of certainty that I am rarely comfortable with, I didn't expect this life. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about love. We know it as the love chapter. But if you go to verse 12, we find an interesting statement. You might call it curious. Verse 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. The KJV says, we see through a glass darkly. I like that turn of phrase. When I was 16, I was looking through a glass darkly. I just didn't know it. Now I'm on the wrong side of 40. I'm married. I have three kids, two boys and a girl. The oldest, Connor, is 15. He has his permit. I'm teaching him to drive. My hair has gotten grayer in the last year. It's hard to come to terms with being 40, let alone having teenagers. You know, I try to be cooled out. I once said to Connor that he could dye his hair green, and he looked at me with this slightly incredulous look and said, why on earth would I want to do that? And I thought to myself, if my mother had ever remotely gotten close to saying that, it would have been green before the sentence was done. I don't know how I'm supposed to say it stay young with a kid who just looks at me sideways and I say that. Sierra is my girly girl. She's 10. She's into pink and clothes and power tools and building things with me. She yells daddy every time I come home and believes that bow ties are cool, which is why I'm wearing them, even, wearing it even though Loretta barely tolerates them. I love it. And then there's Nathan. You see, there's so much balled up into that one sentence. There is love and loss and wonder and fear. And Nathan is 14. He likes many of the things that his older brother likes. But there's a difference. A difference that blew my expectations. You see, Nathan has autism. He doesn't agree with me when I say that. I love my son more than words can express. I want the best for him. I want him to be happy. I want him to be loved and to know God and to place him first. And most days, I simply hope that we get through it without too many meltdowns. 
without too much opposition, without too much, well, work. Nathan has higher functions than most kids diagnosed with autism. He's verbal, he's affectionate, often too affectionate. When you see Nathan, you don't automatically see that he's different. He looks normal, like the rest of us. But he's not. He doesn't do abstract, not really. He doesn't do metaphors. My favorite classes at college were philosophy and theology. I'm a writer at heart. What you're hearing today is kind of adapted from three chapters of a book I was asked to be part of. I live for metaphors. He can't tell you why something happened or draw an inference when you give him four facts. He can spell most anything, loves to draw and play Legos. He quotes videos he loves incessantly. Currently, it's the Lego movie. The kid has seen it twice and has memorized basically the entire thing. He mashes up the things he loves in interesting ways. Somewhere I have in, uh, at home a drawing of the bird Avengers. That would be the angry birds and the Avengers mashed up into one. And I'm not sure who's who, but one of the birds is carrying Thor's hammer. So, Nate is convinced that the best music is from the 80s. I blame his mother. He's often amused for reasons that no one can seem to fathom. And he loves his cat, Stella. You never know what he's going to say next. It's always going to be an adventure. And I alternately feel that I wouldn't trade the quirkiness as an autistic boy for anything and that there is nothing that I would not do to cure him so that he could live a normal life. You see, I had lots of wants and expectations for my son. All of us as parents do. Maybe I can get past mine but what about my wife's? What about his? In his mind, he's going to get married, knows the girl, has six kids, lives in Oswego with grandma, or next door to grandma. How do I explain that these things are maybe not reality? How do you explain life and love and hope and God and the fact that he probably isn't going to live on his own to him? There's a hundred thoughts in my mind right now of what he can't do, of what he won't experience, and I hate it. My wife tries to tell her kids not to use that word. Sometimes it's appropriate. This is one of those times. You see, in all of this stuff, you have to understand, my faith is central to who I am. It is not tacked on, it is not an appendage to make me feel better about life. It is who I am. I don't have my best life now, and I still believe. I believe more deeply today, in and through Nate's life, than I did when I was 16. But, when it comes to expectations... How do you help a 14-year-old boy who doesn't do abstract to understand God? How do you explain the need for redemption to a child who hears in church that he's supposed to be like Jesus, who was perfect, and then is totally discombobulated when he is told that he himself is not perfect, 
won't be, and it's okay. How do I, as a father, an elder, an ordained minister, navigate these waters? How do I reach into his life and convey very deep truths in Scripture? Nate picks up more than you would imagine. John Redmond and I taught a class using Francis Schaeffer's How Then Shall We Live? And Nate sat in. And about six months after it was over, Nate told me that God lived in Geneva, Switzerland with Francis A. Schaeffer. He was catching more than I thought, but the details were a bit fuzzy. And then there's just going to church. Okay? Much less the concept. I'm talking the logistics. Most families with special needs kids don't go to church. Not because they're opposed, but because of the difficulties. You know, we, we want our kids to be included in the wider programs and to be engaged with their peers and all of these things. And often it's just not realistic. And I don't say that as an accusation. I say it both as dad and as elder that it's hard. I still want Nate to form real relationships and to grow and to become. And I was, as I was thinking about this, I realized that in the Old Testament, Nathan was a prophet. We don't know much about him at all. Other than the fact that he had the audacity to call the king on the carpet. My Nathan has been a prophet in my own life. One who has had the unwitting audacity to ask me the question, to demand that I answer, what are you going to do about me? How are you going to teach me about Jesus? What are you going to do about the fact that church as a whole, I'm not talking village here, but I mean church as a whole, doesn't know what to do with people like me? And the thing is, he doesn't even know he's asking. See, Nate is forcing me to change my expectations about what God is doing, what my life should look like. And I don't have all the answers. I don't even know all of the right questions. But the thing about faith is that it isn't sight. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. We don't see well now. And our expectations, whether they're at 16 or 40-something or 83 or whenever, aren't quite right. And we need to recognize that. We see through a glass darkly. And that usually leads us to a fairly simple question. Why? Mostly why is a great question. It's the question we use when we're trying to figure things out. It's the question we learn at about three years old, and we don't stop asking until we've worn our parents out, and some of us don't ever stop asking why. We take it for granted as a basic question. That is, until you have a kid who doesn't do why. Why are you upset, Nate? Because I'm crying. I know you're crying, but why are you crying? Because. 
Now, to be fair, I've had my fair share of those kinds of conversations with my neurotypical kids. You know, the difference then is that why comes into focus a lot faster, even when they don't want to tell me why. It may take some time, but I can get there. With Nate, getting to why is kind of like uh, me playing the part of Sherlock Holmes without the high IQ, cool English accent, and doctor sidekick. You have to come at things sideways. Catch him off guard and ask lots of different questions in hopes that he'll give up a string of clues that will get you to the answer. And so when you do get to why, it's like a revelation. It doesn't always fix things, but at least you get it. It can be frustrating to live in the constant knowledge that getting to why for everyday situations, things that we take for granted, is virtually impossible. And sometimes it's very difficult for me because I love why. I grew up in a very, very practical household. My father is over there. He can and does fix just about everything. He literally built his house. I grew up holding lights under cars and holding boards as things were cut and built. And there didn't seem to be anything that he couldn't fix, which was a really good thing because things kept on breaking. You know? And as a kid, I just thought he knew how to do everything. But I've since realized that he didn't always know what he was getting into when he started. What he did have was a basic mechanical understanding and a mind that observed things. He took things apart and looked and saw how they fit together, and he remembered. He saw what didn't fit or was worn out or whatever. And I've learned that I have to approach Nathan the same way. Sometimes you have to break things down into component parts to figure out how they fit together to get to why. And as much as I want it, Nate can't give me a why. He can't explain it and he gives few clues to figure it out. And that's perhaps the hardest part. But I'm learning that a childhood spent helping my father build and fix everything under the sun was preparation. God was preparing me with a why I couldn't see at the time. But of course, why goes deeper than just that sort of thing about figuring out your kid? When our expectations are shattered, when crisis comes in our lives, we don't ask why because we want information. Well, we do want information, but mostly that's secondary. When we cry out why to God, it's usually a combination of a question and a demand all wrapped up in pain and grief and feelings of betrayal. I'm not the first person in the world to ask why, and I'm certainly not going to be the last. I'm certain that there are many of you in this sanctuary right now asking why God. The difference between where you're at and where I'm at is that I'm standing here and I get to say it out loud. I don't know what your why is. Perhaps you're asking why about a marriage that is in crisis or the fact that you are single in a church that seems to be full of married people. Perhaps you've lost your job or you're facing cancer or there is one of a hundred other horrible things. 
But what I do know is that when our expectations are shattered and we inevitably ask why, we are not alone. Scripture is filled with people asking why. Take a look at the prophets. Plenty. The children of Israel ask God why in the wilderness. Naaman asks why he must wash in the Jordan. And then there's David. Have you ever read the Psalms? David asks why a lot. We don't want to live in a world of whys. We want the world of Psalm 40 verses 1 to 5. It goes like this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. That's the world we want. That's the world we long for. We want to be lifted out of that pit and set onto the solid ground, and we're fine with being an example of God's grace as long as we no longer need it. Look at how good I've got it now. But the thing about Psalm 40 is, it starts there. But look at verse 11. Verses 11 to 13. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. That is after God's rescue in verse 1. Not before. It doesn't technically ask why, but it's in there. Our expectations get shattered and we cry out to God. Every parent of an autistic child does that. They ask why. Everyone facing pain asks why. Why did this happen to me? To my child. Why God? Why? Alternating exasperation and rage I find. I wish I had a good answer. I don't. God doesn't give us that. I don't have an answer for your whys either. Sometimes there isn't a why or there's at least not one we can see in the here and now. In my self-pitying moments, I sometimes wonder, okay, God, do you ever ask yourself why about us? I have multiple theological degrees. I can give you arguments and cliches about how God isn't surprised by the stupid things that we do. And so I'm tempted to say that God does not ask why about us. And then I remember. Matthew's account of Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27, 46 the most disturbing question ever written. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Jesus asked why. It wasn't about information. He knew the answer. The point is that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, knows such extreme agony, such extreme suffering that he calls out why to the Father. For parents of kids on the spectrum, why is less about causes than it is a demand that the pain that we feel, that our spouses feel, that all the lost hopes and dreams matter somehow. That it means something. To be sure, we'd like causes and reasons. I think that's pretty much universal. And I have always been a firm believer in starting with why. Because I think it's the most fundamental human question. And I also think that most of us, too often, drift through life trying to keep ourselves busy or amused or whatever just so we don't have to face the reality of why. But sometimes, we have to break things down before we can get to why. And I hate that. I want the answer now. Give me the rationale. Let me evaluate it and decide if it's something I want to spend my time and energy on. And life's not like that. The why is hidden. And for me, I would have never thought when I was 16... That all of those years of oil and sawdust and hammers and wrenches and watching my father tear apart cars and rebuild garage doors and a hundred other things that I don't remember would help me to understand my son. But they have. And perhaps it has taken a son with autism to help me to see that there is something beyond asking why. That I can still live a life of abundance, John 10, 10. See, whys are normal, but we can't stay there. Jesus asked the Father why, and the answer was us. It was me. Which, when you think about it, ought to be enough for us. If the why is about us, that ought to lead to rejoicing. But when we're faced with the frightening realities of life, we tend to live lives of fear and, and worry. Philippians 4.4 4 says, well, you know it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. For me, rejoice looks more like that. There's a question mark. You see, because it feels trite when you're facing trials. The problem is not the verse, the problem is our perspective. We try to read verses like this alone, and you can't do that. It's not what Paul intended for us to do, it's not what God intends us to do. It's not a formula, it's not an abstraction, it's not a proof text. It's not the sign of a person in denial. You see, 4-4 is part of a larger passage, and I'll just give you a couple of verses, verses 4-7. to seven. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. A life characterized by worship. An attitude of gentleness. 
Remembering the reality of the Lord's nearness. Prayer. All of those are connected to that command to rejoice. And not to be anxious. Not just any prayer. Petitions and thankfulness. And those aren't easy things to do when life is tough. But we have to do it anyway. They're necessary. You see, peace isn't some abstraction. It isn't just an idea that we throw out there. We want God just to drop peace down on our heads. We talk about peace a lot at this time of year. And we don't want to have to work for it or do anything. We want God to just, poof, give it. Fix it, God. One of the editors at CT Magazine and speaker, Sky Jatani, says that we treat Jesus like the duct tape WD-40 combo pack. He's what you need to fix just about anything. How's that work? You see, when we treat Jesus as a spiritual tool, you're not going to find peace. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's impossible when we're self-focused. Just not possible. It's impossible not to be anxious. It's only when I focus on God first that his peace is even possible. And I've often lived a life of low-grade angst even before Nate. Comes with focusing on why all the time. Can't get rid of the angst on my own. And it's only when I get off of self and reorient my life toward God that peace is even possible. I have no idea how Nate goes to college or gets married or has a career or a hundred other things. They don't look like they're in the cards from my perspective. And it's hard to rejoice when I focus on that. You see, all of us have our worries. And all of us need to remember that God gives peace. We don't create it. I'm trying to teach Nathan to pray when he's upset, when he's worried, to ask Jesus to help him calm down, to cope with the things that bother him. I'm learning from my own teaching. I'm learning to put God first, to be gentle when I'm not naturally, to pray more honestly, to present petitions with thanksgiving and not just give laundry lists. I'm not done yet. But Nate's presence in my life has helped me to see the person that God is calling me to be. When I move toward God, I worry less. I can rejoice in God and in small victories. Who knows what the future holds for Nate? It's mine to do what I can, and it is God's to do for him when I cannot. The question is not, how does reality work? It's whether or not I trust God to do it. And this is where the good news comes in. I hope you've seen throughout today that I've seen glimpses of good news, what I call glimpses of grace, even in the midst of hard things. I don't tell you my story, our story, Nate's story for sympathy or to sound spiritual, but to point to a reality that every one of us in this room faces. First, everybody's broken. That doesn't sound like good news, but it is. You'll see why in a second. See, the first thing you need to hear there is everybody is broken. All of us. The difference between us and Nate is that we can hide our brokenness and he can't. 
Genesis 3 tells us the story of the fall. How humanity rebels against God. And we have been paying the price ever since. But we get into trouble if we start in Genesis 3. It's true, we need to be aware of it. And we live in a world that doesn't want to take the fall seriously. But Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3. God creates well. In 127, that we read that God creates us in his image. And once the fall happens, the image isn't gone. It is broken. It is marred is the better way to think about it. But it's still there. Our brokenness shows up in different ways. We have different issues that all of us face, but all of us are broken. Some of them are just more obvious than others. Here's the thing about realizing that we're all in the same boat. When we are willing to admit that, we can give up silly notions of that we are somehow better or worse than anyone else. We can give up trying to save ourselves. We can't get there from here. We can give up on the expectations and the worry because we realize it's not up to us to begin with. And then we can start to live. Because in spite of our brokenness, God loves us anyway. It's right there in Genesis 3. The prophecy of redemption in verse 15, the crushed head and the bruised heel, we've just spent practically a month talking about that, the birth of Christ. In chapter 4, one right after the fall, God's plan for redemption begins. We see it in the story of Cain and Abel, and it keeps on moving forward until Jesus. From the very beginning, God has loved us, even in, especially in our brokenness. And the expulsion from Eden wasn't simply a curse, it was also a blessing because verse 22 of chapter 3 tells us that God didn't want us to live eternally in a fallen state. From Genesis to Revelation, God is working to redeem everything. Jesus is not simply some good moral teacher. He is not a spiritual tool to get us to heaven. He is the goal of the law. The fulfillment of it, Matthew 5 tells us. Jesus is grace made manifest for us. I love the Todd Agnew song, Grace Like Rain. That is what Jesus is. Grace like rain falling down on us. In Romans 8, 18 to 22 and Colossians 1, 15 to 20, we read that God is redeeming all of creation in Christ. All of the brokenness will one day be wiped away. And we live in the in-between time. The already but not yet time. You see, Jesus shattered the expectations of his people's desire for a Messiah because the problem was much bigger than they thought it was. And he was there to force them to confront their expectations and the whys that, could, that they had so that they could come to a place of rejoicing in him. Jesus Christ shatters even our diminished expectations, redeems our whys and allows us to rejoice. 
God can redeem any situation. I believe that to the core of my being. And chances are it's not going to look the way that you want it to or expect. It will certainly demand that we die to ourselves. That we place him at the center. Even in the brokenness of this life on the spectrum, God is continually at work. He is redeeming my son's brokenness by the compassion that I've seen in his brother and sister. They are becoming more like Christ because of their brother's brokenness. I see the image of God written in the smile on Nathan's face at the simplest of pleasures. He does birthdays better than anybody. How he actively wants others to be happy. And I am also reminded in his brokenness that I too am broken. That I still and always need to remember that my story isn't unique. We're all broken people. I don't know what you expect in the coming year. I don't know what why you were facing right now. I do know that we can rejoice even when our expectations are shattered, even when our whys seem unending and never answered. Because I know that the small things of my life are nothing compared to what God has already done for me in Christ. We're all broken. Every last one of us. And God loves us anyway. Would you please stand with me for the benediction? I thought it would be appropriate to end with Jude 24 and 25. I say this as a prayer. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.